I think that it's a requirement of an adequate view of hell that genuinely believing it and deeply appropriating it would have to be an edifying experience. So I think that any theory of hell that has the opposite effect must be flawed. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by Heartland Advocacy in Action, February 8th to help you become a more effective advocate with state and local government. It will be held at First Baptist Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. It's a partnership event between CBF Global, CBF Heartland, ChurchNet, and Word and Way. The event will include practical training on how you can become a more effective advocate at both the local and state levels. And we'll be focusing a lot on issues like payday lending and church-state separation. Learn more at tinyurl.com heartlandadvocacy. And then join us February 8th at First Baptist Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. That's tinyurl.com slash heartlandadvocacy. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Zach Manus. He's a professor of philosophy at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. And he's also the author of a new book, Sinners in the Presence of a Loving God, an essay on the problem of hell. I had a chance to sit down with Zach in his office on the campus of SBU late in December And I think you'll find this conversation to be really thought-provoking and interesting as he's going to talk about a lot of different ways of viewing hell and also why it matters. Why it matters to our own spiritual walk, our own view of God, our own way that we deal with and act towards other people. Why it matters what we believe about hell. This can be a, a controversial topic, but Zach walks through these issues in a very logical, a very fair, and a very sincere way. So I've learned a lot from this conversation, as well as from reading through that new book. So I hope that you find this discussion about hell to also be helpful. So here's my interview with Zach Manus of Southwest Baptist University. Zach, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me. I guess I should also say thanks for letting me into your office. Yeah. Here. My uh-uh. pleasure. <laughs> on the campus of Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. And we have a, a great view out onto the, the empty campus. All the students are gone. Yeah. Yeah. It gets pretty quiet around here. Yeah. Christmas break. Christmas break. Yep. Yeah, very good. Well, we'll talk a moment about the specifics of your thoughts on hell and, and your book. But, but first I wanted to ask, why write a book on hell? Hmm. Why not just read the Bible and believe what it tells us? Yeah, well, uh, certainly we should read the Bible and believe what it, it tells us. But uh, those who read the Bible quickly notice it, it has a lot to say about hell and, and related subjects like final judgment and eternal punishment, the destruction of the wicked and so forth. And in many cases, it's not altogether obvious how those various teachings fit together to form a single coherent whole. So on the one hand, the problem is that the Bible says too much for us, so to speak. The challenge is to construct a model of hell that can harmonize these various teachings. And on the other hand, there's a sense in which the Bible says too little for us. And by that, I mean the Bible doesn't uh, always directly answer the questions, or at least not all of the questions, 
that we might want to ask about hell and other um, issues about the afterlife. And in some cases, these are questions that are really important and pressing, like uh, what is the fate of those who die in infancy? And so another challenge is to construct a model of hell that can answer some of those questions without just resorting to baseless speculation. So I'm sure that you know that writing about hell, especially if you propose an approach that is other than one of eternal conscious torment, uh, can, can be dangerous in the evangelical Christian world. And so... I'm wondering, first of all, why why do you think that is? Yeah. And then the second question is, were you worried about that when you decided <laughs> to write a book on hell? Yeah. Uh, not as worried as I uh, apparently should have been. <laughs> uh, and one of the reasons I wasn't more worried is, is that the model that I was developing and defending, it upholds the traditional idea of hell as a, as a state of eternal suffering. So it's a traditional view in that sense. But the general question remains, why is it that many people get so upset when they encounter ideas that challenge their existing views on hell? And uh, not surprisingly, I think there are, there are different possible reasons. It's tempting to speculate about people's motives. And in, in some cases, those motives don't seem uh, altogether pure. <laughs> so some people find in the doctrine of hell a tool or a weapon that they can use to get something they want, and I think they're hostile to anything they see as an attempt to take that away from them. For example, some people are using the doctrine of hell as a threat to try to bring about a greater number of conversions. Um, other people think that the threat of hell is necessary to motivate people to behave morally. Most disturbing of all, uh, perhaps is is that some people actually relish the idea that their enemies will eventually meet the worst fate imaginable. They delight in the thought that the people that they hate will be uh, tortured for all eternity. So they don't see any problem of hell at all. The problem, as they see it, are the arguments that challenge their assumptions about hell. There are cases where people have been uh, victims of horrendous evil or injustice where that kind of reaction might at least be understandable, but nevertheless, it is deeply unchristian. Desiring that your enemies will be consigned to hell is the very opposite of loving them, and I think it's very clear that the Lord has commanded us to love our enemies. So some of the motives for this reaction may not be the most virtuous. However, there is another more charitable explanation for why people sometimes get really upset when they encounter opposing views about hell. And I, th I think in many cases, this is the right interpretation. Many people sincerely believe that the gospel requires that their view of hell is true. So they hear a challenge to the understanding, to their understanding of hell as a challenge to the gospel itself. Now, in a sense, I think there's something right about that. They're right to be upset by the idea that the truth of the gospel is being undermined. But in many cases, they're wrong in assuming that the truth of the gospel requires their particular understanding of hell and all its detail. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, as I was driving here and listening to the radio and the news this morning from last night of a of a prominent politician who was who was joking about the fact that a political opponent might be literally in hell right now mm. kind of watching the times. And it, that seems to really resonate with what I, I this idea that we we seem to enjoy the fact 
mm. and perhaps our enemies might get this you know everlasting punishment yeah and i don't know that that seems to be a, a dangerous almost a, a godlike type of theology that we would put ourselves in that role not just that mm. there might be a hell yeah and that somebody's going there but that we get to decide who yeah uh, almost seems embedded in that yes certainly that is dangerous putting ourselves in the position of judge of, of who gets to decide others final destinies but i think what is even more dangerous is how spiritually um pernicious it is to harbor this desire that some people will meet a, a ruinous end uh, i think that that's a kind of hatred that will shape your soul and it will uh, it will mar uh, your soul it's it's a destructive tendency i think that 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 sentiment is a uh, a deeply sinful one and uh, very much contrary to uh, the love uh, even for our enemies again that god commands of us so i think that what i hear you saying then is that it's important for us to think about hell because mm. not only does it does it shape our theology in the way we think about God. Yeah. It's also shaping the way that we think we're supposed to act. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Most of most of my book is is concerned more with the way the doctrine of hell shapes our view about God. But I think it is true that our theology also guides our behavior at least when we internalize that theology very deeply. So um, I think that this is something you observe, that, that people act in ways that are imitations of how they see God. So I, I think sometimes people who perceive God to be very controlling, there's a certain kind of theology that pictures God as manipulating people for his own ends, and that in some cases those ends require individuals to be finally destroyed. And I, I think that sort of theology in which God actually desires and is orchestrating a ruinous end for people encourages people who hold that theology to, well, to be manipulative and to, in a way, worship power, to see God's fundamental attribute as being controlling. And I think sometimes people who internalize that theology act in ways that resemble it. Well, before we get too much more into what you've written about hell, mm. I do think it might be helpful for us to learn a bit about your journey and your background in philosophy. And so I guess the question is, who is Zach Manis? Where did he come from? Who were you before you began <laughs> yeah. teaching at Southwest Baptist? Okay. Um, yeah. So, so I was raised in a Christian home. I, I grew up in a in the church, and it was a non-denominational Bible church from as early as I can remember and, until I left home. And in college, I ended up, again, being a part of a non-denominational Bible church, and the first part of my graduate studies was the same. So I, I was drawn into the, uh, the Baptist world, Baptist proper. I mean, non-denominational Bible churches often are pretty close to Baptist churches in their theology, but was drawn into the full-fledged <laughs> version of Baptist life. Uh, when, I, when I went to Waco to begin a PhD program in philosophy at Baylor University, there were two very fine Christian scholars 
who were a part of that program, uh, who worked in the area of Kierkegaard studies, and, and I wanted to study with them. So those, uh, those philosophers are Bob Roberts and Steve Evans. For anybody who's interested in their work, you can find it under their professional names, Robert C. Roberts and C. Stephen Evans, two of the, the finest Christian philosophers writing today. Highly recommend their work. So that was how I ended up at Baylor. That, I guess, was, was the beginning of, of um, being a part of, of Baptist life in the, in the full-fledged sense. Uh, and the year, the final year that I was working on my dissertation, I was not planning to apply to any jobs yet, but two jobs came open, one of which was at Southwest Baptist University. And so I, I was interested in that. And, and after I learned a little more about the university and, and met the faculty, I decided I would like to begin my career here, and now it's my 15th year at SBU. Because we just barely missed each other then. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I didn't I, realize you had been here that long. I started in the fall of 2005. Okay. Yeah. I graduated in 2003. So. Okay, yeah. yep. Yeah. <laughs> barely missed. Well, let's, let's talk about your, your book, Sinners in the Presence of a Loving God. Of course, that title's a, a bit of a, a rip-off uh, famous sermon. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly an allusion. Allusion to, yeah, to, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and we'll get Edwards. into a little bit more in a moment. Obviously, the allusion yeah. is also suggesting perhaps some some ways that it might be different than that famous That's right. sermon. But That's first, right. before we start talking about these different <laughs> approaches to thinking about hell, I want to know that early in the book, you explain kind of key criteria for what you call an adequate solution yeah. to the, the question, the problem of hell. Yeah. And I think that might be good for us to kind of lay that out first. And so can you okay. explain why these areas matter? You have biblical, traditional, theological, philosophical, and moral. Yeah. Okay. So first off, we haven't yet stated what the problem of hell is. And we should probably do that for our listeners to make sure that they, that they know what we mean by that phrase. So you can express the problem in the form of a question. Why would an all-powerful and all-good and all-loving God consign anyone to eternal suffering in hell? So it, it's really a problem about how to reconcile a doctrine about the fate of some people with a set of doctrines about the nature of God. So since God is perfectly good and loving, it seems that he would want everyone to be saved. And, in, and indeed, Scripture affirms that God desires that all would be saved. But since he's all-powerful, it seems that he could get whatever he wants. So why then is anyone lost? So that's the problem. How do we, how do we answer that question? How do we reconcile this set of, of Christian doctrines that seem to be in tension with one another? All right. So in the introduction to the book, I'm, I'm trying to orient readers by getting them to consider what would count as an adequate solution to this problem for them. And there are a number of different criteria by which we would judge a certain view of hell to be adequate or not. So obviously Baptists want an adequate solution to be faithful to Scripture. They would require that. We also want a view that is internally consistent, and that's a, that's a philosophical criterion. For some, but not for others, it's important that it accord with tradition. So there are these various criteria that we might assess a proposed solution to be either adequate or not. But it, it turns out there's probably no way to construct a solution to the problem of hell that would be satisfying to everyone. Because each of these various criteria for an adequate solution 
begins to pull apart from the others if it's pressed too far. So what I want readers to consider is which criteria they take to be most important. We might say, which ones are unrelinquishable? So here's an example to try to um, show what I mean here. How much weight would you put on tradition? Is fidelity to tradition a necessary condition of an adequate view of hell? Is any non-traditional model of hell just automatically disqualified as an adequate solution? If so, then tradition is for you an unrelinquishable feature of an adequate view of hell. So in the introduction, I'm trying to get readers to ask questions like that, to try to figure out what for them is unrelinquishable. And eventually, I, I state what my own criteria for an adequate solution are. Uh, and so for anybody who's, who's interested, um, here it is. I'll, I'll read one paragraph from the introduction. An adequate solution must accord with the entirety of Scripture and find significant support therein. It must also accord with the best and most prominent aspects of the Christian tradition on the subject through the ages. And as a guard against theological novelty, it should be a view that in its general form is accepted by a significant portion of the church today. Theologically, it must be consonant with the tradition of perfect being theology, with its view of the divine nature as being comprised of all compossible great-making properties in their maximal forms. This requires in particular that God's goodness, justice, and love are such that none greater is possible. Morally, an adequate solution must be one that understands love, in particular agape love, in such a way that, a, that to love a person includes willing his or her highest good insofar as one is able. So I state that to my readers so that they know where I'm coming from. This is, this is the criteria by which I will be judging different views to be either adequate or not. And in the end, I'm going to argue that, that for me, a solution is going to be adequate only if it meets all those criteria. And that will allow readers, I hope, to assess whether or not this, this book is worth their time. Um, <laughs> if, if those are, are criteria for an adequate solution that they share, hopefully that will make them interested in, in what I do in the chapters to follow. Now, you then... You work through the book and you critique the four most commonly held theories of hell. Mm. And and I know that I'm I'm being broad there because you also critique different versions. Yes. You, but we'll we'll talk, we'll speak broadly and, and if people want more detail they can read the book. But yeah. but there's four kind of big families of, of theories of hell. Yeah. And and I also want to note that you you offer a balanced take as mm. you try to explain these approaches, mm. uh, why you think that Orthodox Christians can hold to those beliefs, which I think is a thing you were talking about a moment ago about how sometimes we, we connect our theory to hell to defending that because it's defending the gospel. Mm, and, yeah. and what you seem to be acknowledging throughout the book is that someone could be a Christian and hold to one of these views, mm. even though it's not your particular perspective. And I, I think that mm. that's a healthy, healthy for us as readers as we're walking through this, that we don't, it didn't feel like you were attacking me if I held one of these other theories. Yeah. But then at the same time, you do go through and work out why you think they don't, they're not adequate, why, yes. why, why you don't hold to these. And so I, I thought it might be helpful if we could kind of briefly walk through these four approaches and maybe give us a, something that you think works well, and then mm -hmm. also why ultimately you have a concern with this approach. Yeah. Uh, and so let's, let's go ahead and just start with the, the traditional, because that's the one that probably is yeah. more common to Okay. Yeah. So, so I would call the first view uh, traditionalism or even full-fledged traditionalism. And the reason for that is that I consider all of the major views 
that take hell to be a state of eternal suffering, uh, including the divine presence model that, I, that I'm defending. I take all of those to be traditional views of hell. Okay, so um, what is the advantage of full-fledged traditionalism? Well, I think it does enjoy the strongest support from tradition. The, the disadvantage, and this is what I, I try to argue at some length in the book, is that under close scrutiny, it seems to compromise the doctrines of God's perfect goodness and love. Um, and in order to explain that, it might be helpful to know what full-fledged traditionalism is. So full-fledged traditionalism is going to say not only that there is a hell, and not only that hell is a state of eternal suffering for those consigned to it without any possibility of, of escape and so forth, but there's a there's a characteristic claim that it makes about the purpose of hell. It says the the reason that God consigns people to hell, its, it's intended purpose is retributive punishment. So God is inflicting this punishment on the damned as a, a punishment. And it, it turns out on most versions of this to be an artificial punishment, meaning it's not a natural consequence of their actions. It's something that God imposes on them by his free choice. So to, to see the difference between a natural consequence and an artificial consequence, think about two possible consequences of driving too fast. So you might get pulled over and get a big speeding ticket. That's what I mean by an artificial consequence. It has to be imposed by someone else on you as a punishment. But something else that could happen is, is you could lose control of your car and wreck it, hurt yourself. That's the kind of thing I mean by a natural consequence. And it's a characteristic feature of, of full-fledged traditionalism that hell is viewed as an artificial consequence and that God freely selects this punishment to impose on the damned as a retributive punishment. I think that that view ends up really struggling to account for the, the doctrines of God's perfect and maximal goodness and love. The tradition says that God's goodness and love are unsurpassable. He could not be any greater, any more loving than he is. That's very hard to square with full-fledged traditionalism for a couple of reasons. And this was a longer answer than you may have wanted for this, but, but one has to do with a concern about a disproportion between earthly wrongdoing and an eternal punishment. Call that the problem of justice. There's a lesser known, but I think equally severe problem about God's love on this model. Uh, it's very difficult to see how God loves those who are consigned to hell. And I develop that concern in the book, but the problem is basically this. Even if you can argue that the punishment is just, it seems that it's loving only if it's intended for the good of the ones he's punishing. And on the traditional view, that's just not the case. God doesn't even intend that. So um, I, I think that in the end, traditionalism is, is going to mitigate the doctrines of God's perfect goodness and justice and love. And it's, it's only going to get worse if you combine it with further doctrines, like a doctrine of meticulous providence, such as we find in Calvinism. That's going to greatly exacerbate the problem. Okay, so that, that's an advantage and a disadvantage yeah. of full-fledged traditionalism. And then there's the, the choice model. Yeah. And 
one, we might probably need to explain each of these next three. They may not yeah. be as commonly known as, as full-fledged traditionalism. Yeah. So, so the remaining three are the choice model and universalism and annihilationism. So let me let me address those in the the order that I do in in the book because the way that I'm trying to move in the book is first once once we've discussed traditionalism to move to its most extreme opposite which is universalism mm-hmm. and then to show how annihilationism and the choice model are in between those. So what's the advantage of of universalism? Why would anybody adopt that view? Well, so Christian universalism is not the view that there is no hell. It's not the view that everyone you know, goes straight to heaven regardless of, of how they've lived their lives or regardless of how they have related to God, regardless of whether they've accepted Christ. That's, that's not what the Christian universalist believes. The Christian, that is a version of universalism that's perhaps sometimes kind of yes. parody, but that's you're, yes. you're, you're separating from that kind of just everyone goes to heaven, it doesn't matter. That's right. That's right. So I suppose there are some people who believe that, but they're not they're not Christian universalist in, in at least the mainstream of that group. So here's, here's what Christian universalists think. They think there is a hell, um, but everyone is eventually delivered from it. So uh, it's, it's often called a doctrine of universal reconciliation. They're thinking of hell as either a retributive punishment that once the punishment is complete, people are delivered from hell, or they're thinking of it as some sort of, of uh, spiritually formative experience that is a, a sanctifying one. So obviously that's a, a very different way of construing the nature and purpose of hell than the traditional view. Why would anybody hold that view? Well, it's, it's advantage, I think, it's, its best advantage, is that it most clearly affirms both the doctrine of God's maximal sovereignty or providence and also God's maximal goodness and love without contradiction or equivocation or appeal to mystery. So going back to that argument we were talking about a moment ago, the universalist says God's perfectly good, so he desires that all would be saved, and he is perfectly sovereign, and so he can always get what he wants, so everyone is saved. So it has an elegant response to the problem, but its liability, its fundamental disadvantage, is that it diverges significantly from Christian tradition, where by tradition I mean the way that the vast majority of Christians through the ages have interpreted scripture on the matter. So I would say in general that for any particular teaching, the fact, assuming that it's a fact that the vast majority of Christians through the ages have understood that teaching to be a doctrine revealed in scripture, I think that's strong prima facie evidence that it really is a revealed doctrine. And so that to me is the fundamental problem for universalism is that it it diverges from tradition in that sense. So suppose we're unhappy with with either one of those uh, views that are on on the extreme opposites. What are some possible middle grounds? Well, annihilationism is the view that the suffering of hell does not go on without end, that either immediately or after a period of retributive punishment those who are consigned to hell are finally 
destroyed in the sense of being utterly annihilated. And there's different ways of working out that view. What's its advantage? Well, there is a strong biblical case to be made for it, which is why you see a number of prominent evangelicals who have embraced this view, maybe most notably John Stott, but lots of others too. I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm I'm not going to be of much help in, in guiding people through those arguments, but I think it's it's fair to say, based on the prominence of the biblical scholars who have endorsed this view and, and the kinds of biblical support that they've marshaled for it, that there is a strong case to be made. But it has a disadvantage. I think it inherits less severe versions of the problems that plague both traditionalism and universalism. So it still diverges from Christian tradition in the way that I, I just mentioned with universalism. So it, it, it shares that same fundamental problem. But I think it still doesn't manage to really solve the problems about divine love and justice that plague traditionalism. And I, I developed those arguments um, in the book. I won't, I won't try to uh, rehash them here. But I think its, it's disadvantage is that it ends up being a compromise solution. So it inherits the problems of both sides, I think, without really solving anything. So that's its disadvantage. Now, finally, the choice model. So for for those who are not familiar with the term choice model, think the view of hell that has been developed by C.S. Lewis in books like The Great Divorce and also his chapter on hell from The Problem of Pain. So the, the basic idea of the choice model is that God does not consign people to hell so much as they consign themselves to hell. So hell is, is either the direct or indirect choice of those who are consigned to hell. In some sense, God is just respecting people's free will. They are choosing separation from God, and God uh, gives them what they want. So that's, that's why Lewis famously says that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. What's the advantage of this view? Well, it's, it's a philosophically and theologically sophisticated development of the traditional idea of hell as, as an eternal state of suffering, but it has a compelling account of how some people could be lost despite God's doing everything in his power to save everyone. So it, it upholds the traditional view of hell uh, um, that some are finally lost and that it's, it's an eternal state, but it, it manages to do so without compromising God's perfect and maximal goodness and love. That's its advantage. It's, it's, a, it's a big advantage. But I think it, it also has a disadvantage. And that's that it doesn't really enjoy much direct scriptural support. And I, I think in the end, it's not able to fully do justice to some of uh, the prominent scriptural themes that we find on on the subject of hell and related issues. Themes like eternal punishment, the wrath of God, um, this theme about the fear of the Lord that we should have. I think it struggles to fully accommodate those biblical themes and that that's its biggest disadvantage. We'll be right back with the rest of this interview. But first, I need to let you know that this episode is also sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. 
For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. And now back to our conversation. Well, now that we've shut down all of those. (laughs) (laughs) So in the book, you then explain the approach that you hold, the divine presence model. Yeah. And I don't want to give away the whole idea because we want people to, to buy the book. Right? That way you can, you know, make at least a few pennies off, off each purchase. I've done academic publishing. I, I know you that you're going to have to keep your day job here. Yeah. Uh, and so, but at the same time, I, I do want people to get a get a sense of what this what this approach is yeah. and why it resonates with you. Yeah, so I, I don't mind giving away the the big idea. Uh, in fact, it's it's in the dust jacket. So oh, there we go. Okay, <laughs> you, you read on Amazon, you can get the you get yeah. the big idea. So there we go. So so here's the basic idea. The basic idea is that heaven and hell are the various ways in which the righteous and the wicked experience the presence of God on the day of judgment and thereafter when God is fully revealed, when God's presence is inescapable, when we experience God's presence in an unmitigated form. So I take it that in this life, we exist in a state of partial divine hiddenness. So God is not fully revealed now as he will be on the day of judgment and thereafter. And I actually, I think that it's really important for a a solution to the problem of hell to say something about the problem of divine hiddenness. So with so much at stake, why doesn't God reveal himself in such a way that that his existence would be absolutely undeniable? And so a part of what I do in developing the model is to try to show how this model has a solution to that problem. But I won't get into that. The, the basic idea is probably a, enough for our, our discussion today. The basic idea then is that those who have persisted in sin and rebellion against God do not experience the presence of God to be a, a pleasant, a much less a joyous experience. For them, it's an experience of uh, judgment. It's a tormenting experience. And I I have some suggestions at the end of the book about why this might be. And one of the ideas is that the presence of God reveals the truth about us. And so there are some people who have accepted the truth, the ugly truth about themselves in this life, the truth that they are sinners, the truth that they are desperately in need of a savior, the truth that they cannot save themselves. And by opening themselves up to God's plan of salvation, by opening themselves up to the renewal of the Holy Spirit, they have, by the day of judgment, they have been conformed to the image of Christ. And the, the truth about themselves now is, is not one that they experience as a torment. It's for them the history of, of God's redemptive work in their lives. It's a truth about how God in his unfathomable grace and love has saved them. So their experience of God is an an experience 
of the fulfillment of their deepest desires. It's, it's an experience of communion and love. It is, it is the highest joy for them, an unsurpassable joy. But for those who have persisted in their sin and rebellion, it's the opposite. It's, it's a tormenting experience of judgment, a feeling of, of exposure from which they can never escape. And I, I think that there is a, a deep resentment that they feel toward God in uh, revealing the truth about them like this. So those are some ideas that I'm trying to develop in the book about why heaven and hell are not arbitrary or artificial consequences. It's not as if heaven is this artificial payoff reward that God gives to the people who have uh, lived good lives or who have said a certain prayer that God accepted. It's it's not that. It's that they these are people who have been through the inner working of the Holy Spirit, they have been conformed to the image of Christ, and they, their nature as human beings has been fulfilled. So God has created us for this end of communion with him. And that process of salvation is one that um, is the fulfilling of the human telos, the end or purpose for which we are created. So they experience God as they were always intended to but not so for those who have persisted in their sin. They experience uh, the very presence of God, the very love of God as a source of, of torment and suffering. So that's the big idea. Let's see. I forget what else you asked about it beyond the big idea. Well, I, well, I think you, I think, <laughs> you know, for a while there. We've done the, the, the test on the others as to why you don't find them adequate. So I, I guess yeah. then the, the flip would be, yeah. so why, why this one then? Okay, good. So... So why do I find this view plausible? Well, uh, first off, I find a, a lot of scriptural support for it, but I should warn our listeners, I, I am just a philosopher. I have absolutely no formal training in biblical studies. So when I say that I find a lot of scriptural support for it, I mean, as a layperson, it seems to me that there's a lot of support in scripture for this idea. And I, I try to develop that at the end of the book. There's a, an addendum where I um, ask, is the divine presence model biblical? And I, I try to argue that it is. The reason I do that is because from the beginning, that was one of my criteria for an adequate solution. It has to be a biblical model. So I'm trying to show why I think it is. But the divine presence model is the one view of hell that satisfies all those other criteria as well. So I, I think that it's, it's the one view that is going to be an adequate solution according to that criteria, that set of criteria that I, I uh, read from the book earlier. I think that it manages to satisfy all of those criteria better than any of the competing views. And so for me, that's, that's why it turns out to be a really plausible view. Well, I know this is really serious, and I'm about to ask a question that's not. I don't really have a good segue, but there was something <laughs> about your answer that 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 popped into my mind, okay. a, a scene from The Good Place. And I just wanted to know, you didn't critique that theory of hell, and so... <laughs> no, I, I didn't. You watched uh, the show? I, I assume yes. you, surely you, you would have to appreciate and enjoy that. Yes, I, ha I haven't seen the latest season. I'm, I'm 
okay. waiting for it to but I don't, that's actually the scene <laughs> the scene that came to my mind oh, okay. I'm not gonna say anything then okay yeah don't don't spoil it yeah me. yeah <laughs> alright no, no critique we're gonna let the good place go or you know, is it plausible I don't know it's probably not very biblical or very traditional <laughs> <laughs> that model of hell uh, satisfies its own criterion of being amusing and funny there we go there we go alright that's good your theory does not does not satisfy the <laughs> right. funny the funny criteria. Right. So. Yeah. Entertainment value yeah. is not among my <laughs> criteria. Well, moving from the philosophical back to the personal, I was wondering that as you were researching, as you were writing this book, was the was there a, a surprise or a shift or what was the thing that you as you're kind of going through that all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, I hadn't thought of that. Like, how did this book change you? Yeah. Oh, okay. I think those are two different questions. Well, yeah, maybe so. So I. <sighs> I don't know that that there was any dramatic shift from the ideas that I had at the beginning of the project to the end. They it was a pretty linear development of ideas, and I I, I think it, instead of being a shift, it was more a growing sense that the core idea of the divine presence model is is very likely true in some form. I think now I'm. I, I don't want to pretend like I, I know that the model in uh, all its detail that I've developed is, is true. I, I certainly would not claim that. But this, this core idea that, that the righteous and the wicked experience the presence of God very differently, I found to be more and more compelling. That idea actually turns out to be compatible in some ways with the other standard models of hell. So there's a place in the book where I, I try to develop some hybrid views. So most of the book, I'm trying to develop a, a pure form of the divine presence model. But I also want to show how if, if you like the core idea, but you still find one of the other standard models more compelling, that there, there could be a way to, to combine them. Uh, you could incorporate that core idea into one of the other standard models. And I think in every single case, it makes this, the, that version of the, that standard view more plausible. So I think it, it improves any view that, that you add it to. So yeah, that's, that's, I guess, the way I would answer the first part of it. Now, the, the second one, the second question you ask is, is how it, shaped me or something like that. Yeah, and I think particularly it, I'm interested in, in how this this is impacting you spiritually. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important question and even more important if we expand it to the more general question of how prolonged and serious reflection on the doctrine of hell shapes a person's faith. I think that it's a requirement of an adequate view of hell that genuinely believing it and deeply appropriating it would have to be an edifying experience. So I think that any theory of hell that has the opposite effect must be flawed. And that actually turns out to be a huge problem for some of the existing models of hell. I think that there, there are certain versions of full-fledged traditionalism that, that have a huge problem here, that the more that you reflect on them, the, the deeper your appropriation of the ideas might be, I think that the, the spiritual effect would be really unedifying. It might actually weaken your faith. And so if, if any listeners want to see how this might happen, I would direct them to an addendum 
to part two. Uh, it's called Additional Problems for Calvinists and Other Theological Determinists. So I think that's the particular combination that might be most unedifying. A traditional doctrine of hell combined with the theological tenets of Calvinism. So I would, I would encourage any Calvinist listeners, check it out. And if you don't have uh, the time or patience to read it all, just, just read the section called The Problem of Faith. It's about five pages long. And you'll, you'll get a, at least an idea of, of the sort of problem that, that I have in mind. So by contrast, I think that the divine presence model meets this requirement of being an edifying view of hell. So it's a model in which God is perfectly and unsurpassably good and loving. It's a model in which God um, unequivocally desires the highest good for each and every person. And that's a God who can be trusted. But it's also a model that places a lot of emphasis on the destructive power of sin, and in particular, the sins of pride and hardness of heart and self-deception. So on the divine presence model, as, as we noted earlier, damnation is the natural uh, consequence of persistence in sin. It's, it's the inevitable endpoint of this trajectory of rebellion against God. So the divine presence model encourages both a, a sober understanding of just how destructive sin is, but also a deeper appreciation of what God is saving us from. And so um, I, I find that it is, it is an edifying view of hell that can be appropriated deeply and strengthen one's faith rather than having the opposite effect, an unedifying effect. I'm not sure that that's the way I would necessarily normally think about hell, but thinking about hell would, you know, strengthen my faith and make me feel more, you know, spiritually enlightened <laughs> and uplifted, right? But I, I like the idea that, that perhaps a theology of hell yeah. could actually be uplifting spiritually yeah. and enriching in, in our lives. You've probably basically answered this question, but I, as we wrap up here, I just wanted to give you a chance to perhaps say it a little bit more explicitly. Mm. What do you hope for people who will read the book? Yeah, so I, I hope that, that readers will be edified by it. I intend this book to be not just a an exploration of a philosophical puzzle and a possible solution to it. There are some philosophical problems that I think are, are like that. They're very far removed from uh, not only our ordinary experience, but, but anything that, that we should really deeply care about. But with the problem of hell, I, I think it's in an extreme form. This is a philosophical problem with practical significance. It is, it is a discussion that, as we've just noted, can be very edifying or unedifying depending on the kind of, of solution that you embrace. So I, I hope that readers will, f will find this book to be edifying as I've hoped and intended for it to be. And also, I, I hope that readers who have personally struggled with the problem of hell and who have found it to be a, a barrier to faith personally, or a barrier to their own spiritual growth, I hope that the, the book will convince them that the problem of hell is not insurmountable, that the doctrine of hell should not be rejected, but neither should one reject or in any way mitigate the traditional understanding of God as perfectly good and loving. Well, I want to just add my affirmation for the book. I found it very thought-provoking. Mm. 
and it's very very thorough. It is a long book. Uh, <laughs> I did. I have noted when I got here, seeing it on your desk, I could see how big it was because I, I have the Kindle uh, ebook version. So, okay, it felt like it was about that that big. Yeah, but maybe, uh, maybe that was the thing that surprised me most is uh, how much I ended up <laughs> wanting to say about it. I, I did not intend the book to be that long right. when I started the project. So where, where can people pick up Sinners in the Presence of a Loving God if they're interested? Yeah, so I think you can find it at, at most of the, the major book distributors. It is unfortunately right now priced by the publisher primarily for institutions. I think for many people that that cost is prohibitive. So I would encourage them to encourage their local libraries. <laughs> and to check it out for free. <laughs> to pick a copy of, yeah, and so that they can check it out for free. And and I really hope that eventually Oxford Press will will release a uh, much more affordable paperback copy. I, I would love it if everyone who was interested in this topic and, and wanted to read the book were able to. Well... Thank you so much for your time. And I do want to note a personal accomplishment that I don't think I made any puns about hell or damned or hot. And I have a bunch of them. And it was really big. So I don't know if it was hard for you, but it was a lot of self-constraint for me uh, to avoid all of yeah. those. So, you know, I wanted to keep this personal a good philosophical conversation. So I guess I just lost it now. So, well, thank you for your time and for, you know, thinking about these these big issues and uh, helping us to think about them as well. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Southwest Baptist University at sbunib.edu. And you can find Zach's book at various websites online or by heading to tinyurl.com slash Zach Manis. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partners for this week's episode, Heartland Advocacy in Action at tinyurl.com slash heartlandadvocacy and the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It really will help more people to find the show. If you have any comments or feedback, you can send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. And if you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. All you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you are missing out on even more news that I think you will find informative and inspiring. So you can fix that by hitting the subscribe button right there at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.